Hello, and welcome to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Our podcast series is designed to educate, challenge, and inspire listeners while keeping you updated on developments regarding modern trust law and powerful planning opportunities available, all in an effort to deliver direction and control to clients and their advisors. Well, hello, this is David Warren, uh, co-founder and chairman of the board of Bridgeford Trust Company um, here uh, with uh, another episode of uh, what has become a highly successful podcast series uh, made successful because of the quality of talent uh, that we've been able to interview in our industry, um, both across the United States and internationally. And, um, you know, we've been able to interview people who are who love big ideas like Bridgeford does and and I, I always say that we're humbled by the by the, by the quality of, of people that we've been able to talk to across the world. And today is certainly no exception. Um, Ruben Tyler is somebody that I had met. We were we were introduced to each other not long ago, um, but his name was certainly familiar to me, and I'm sure familiar to a lot of the uh, people in our audience. Um, he's had a an extremely impressive career in the trust industry, um, culminating in his current company called Trustees and Fiduciaries. It's a Cook's Island company um, doing work that he will describe and talk about in more detail. But but I really want to go through some of Ruben's background because if his name sounds familiar, it's for good reason. Um, Ruben was born in New Zealand and uh, educated there through primary and secondary schooling. Um, and then um, ultimately became, I guess, what is the equivalent in the United States as a lawyer. Um, they refer to it as a barrister. Went to Auckland University, a uh, barrister and a solicitor, which is a bit of a distinction in those jurisdictions, which we'll explain. But um, but it's, again, equivalent to a U.S. attorney for sure, or maybe even more so because of the extra training he had. Um, and he joined, um, which is of, of interest to, to, I think, our audience should be, is that he was with the first private law firm in the Cooks Island. So, so um, Ruben's uh, ties to the Cooks Island and what he's going to talk to you about are, are, are longstanding and, and very impressive. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of the name Southpac Trust Company, uh, which has been around in, for a long time and has a very impressive reputation. Bridgeford actually has worked with them in, in certain capacities over the years when they needed a U.S. trust solution. And uh, Ruben founded Southpac uh, in 1983, I mentioned, and um, that's impressive because that company has an impressive uh, re- uh, reputation and branding from all over the world. Um, ultimately, he transitioned uh, to a couple of different companies uh, in the Cooks Island, um, and uh, he's taken he has taken advantage of Cooks Island's really progressive uh, approach to asset protection privacy. Um, a lot of this, of course, was pre-CRS, but nevertheless, it's still a very impressive jurisdiction. And and, and I think, if I'm not incorrect, and I'll let Ruben uh, correct me, the movie The Firm, I think, involved Cook's Island Trust uh, with, with uh, Tom Cruise. I could be wrong, but we'll, we'll let, we'll let Ruben correct me, because I'm sure I've been wrong a couple times already. <laughs> and I'm happy to be corrected, Ruben. But ultimately, what we're excited to talk about today is Ruben's current company that he started in 2015. Uh, which I already mentioned, Trustees and Fiduciaries, um, Cooks Island Limited Company. And, of course, this information will be available uh, uh, on the website, so I certainly encourage you to look at it. But as you can 
understand and probably hear in the way I'm approaching this, I'm very excited to talk to Ruben today about his experience, his history, uh, his, his, his use of Cook's Island over the years, um, and, uh, and what he's doing currently, which is really forward thinking, I would say thought leadership kind of work in exactly the same way that Bridgeford tries to uh, hit the market. And, and as I began, we, you know, we love talking to people about big ideas. Ruben has big ideas. Ruben has always had big ideas. And our trust companies are remarkably well aligned because of, of its uh, fierce, our fierce independence and in wanting to serve the client as, a, as an independent entity, both privately owned and independently held and in control of our decision making. So with that, Ruben, thank you so much for joining us. Sorry for the long introduction, but there was a lot to say about you. <laughs> okay, David. Well, you've been very generous in your uh, compliments. Um, perhaps if I can just uh, give a little bit of history about my involvement. Sure, please. Um, I got into the offshore industry when I was in private practice uh, in the early 1980s. And uh, during the later part of the 1980s, I think 1987, I was asked to work on legislation in conjunction with a US law firm to design legislation specifically to address some of the asset protection difficulties that were US clients were facing so that mm -hmm. the asset protection legislation that the Cook Islands passed in 87 was um, for the most part drafted by myself and that's really been the the thing about the Cook Islands is that we have a very good working relationship between our legislature and the industry the offshore industry so that mm -hmm. it's a relationship where we can go to our parliament and say to them that there is a problem in uh, offshore jurisdictions in the United States or in the UK. Um, if we provide some legislative response to that, that's fair and reasonable, then we can generate business. And so that's where the asset protection legislation started. And my involvement with that has been ongoing for the last, gosh, it's, uh, what is it, nearly 40 years. Wow. Um, so um, that's the asset protection side of things. But, well, but so look, uh, before, we, before we move off of that, if, that's, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you some, some questions about it. I mean, you know, Cooks Island um, came in uh, a handful of, uh, well, even Isle of Man. I mean, they, they all have kind of um, positioned themselves as the offshore jurisdiction of choice for asset protection, and, and Nevis, I guess, probably most recently. Can you compare and contrast a bit? I mean, especially since you wrote the legislation, what is it about Cooks Island um, that you think makes it stand out as, a, as an offshore um, asset protection um, jurisdiction? Well, I think, I think partly because the legislation itself is better, and there's a number of points there that make it better, but, but I don't think we want to overrate the legislation because what's more important, I think, is the track record and the the fact that we have actually specialised in asset protection in the industry. So when you, when you talk to trust companies in the Cook Islands, they're not involved in forming uh, financial empires and, and doing providing financial services. That's not our specialty. Our specialty 90% of the work here is asset protection, and that's not, that's not the case in any other jurisdiction. So that's, you know, we've got a track record with judges in New Zealand, with the courts, 
with all the different parties that are important to the to an asset protection trust. So that's probably more important than the legislation. Yeah, I was just going to say. I mean, having that that kind of um, uh, history is is vitally important. And you know, from a U.S. perspective, um, asset protection is something we're very passionate about as well. And and it's where you and I certainly can partner. I mean, with our South Dakota charter, certainly there are, there are folks within the United States who gravitate towards that state and others who achieve some sort of asset protection. Um, there's those that believe that really the the purest form of asset protection can only be achieved um, outside of the United States, like the Cooks Island. Um, so I've always been interested in sort of a hybrid approach where, you know, whether what if there's you know, U.S. trust law, but there's uh, the, it's, the assets are in Cooks Island or or some sort of uh, some sort of machination that, that brings that to the table. But I, I think that generally speaking among U.S. asset protection lawyers, I think that's still the consensus. However, please comment on CRS if you can and, and what if any impact that that happened. And for our listeners, of course, it stands for Common Reporting Standard. Uh, which is is continues to be implemented in a confusing way from country to country, all that. But please, Ruben, comment on that. Well, I think CRS is not is not terribly important to asset protection because asset protection is about protecting your assets against um, civil litigation, and it's not it's it's because of the overlap of anti money laundering law. Asset protection trusts are not effective against government actions. So if you've got a, if you've got the FBI or the Inland Revenue um, involved in litigation, then asset protection is not going to work. It, it, it doesn't matter what you're selling; it, it simply won't work out of the Cook Islands, at least. Um, so CRS um, is not terribly important in relation to asset protection. CRS. Um, is important in other areas, um, so that if if your if your industry is heavily tax driven, um, then CRS is important. And but I get back to that point that the Cook Islands is not about tax planning so much; it's about pure asset protection. Asset protection. Yeah, no, I, I agree. No, and I appreciate you making that distinction. I, I can say over the last two or three years. We've had a number of um, offshore asset protection trusts come to us, and, and I, some some have said it's because they're worried about the mandatory reporting that didn't exist prior to CRS. You know, before we we kind of get into some other um, substantive, real interesting topics and, and, and strategies that you've been working on, I want to hear, and I think our audience would like to hear more about your firm and your and your um, vision for the firm. I. I always love when I see the word independence because I think our industry um, across the country, the U.S. and around the world, is wrought with you know terrible and tremendous conflict of interest, and and I talk about it all the time. I, I in, in every every opportunity I have to present and a lot of the, our interviews because you know when I was a lawyer before practicing or before getting into the trust industry, I was sort of stunned with how much conflict of interest exists at trust companies that also manage money, that also sell insurance, that uh, have their own proprietary products and so on and so forth. And um, and we build bridge for very much in juxtaposition and, and because we thought there was too much conflict of interest, at least in the U.S. model, the traditional U.S. model. Ruben, talk to me about that. When you say independence and when you, when you allude to that on your website, what, what is what is your vision of that in the international space? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple of things. One is um, 
just in terms of the Cook Islands and the resources it offers, that uh, the Cook Islands is a very small place. And although we, in a, in a way, we are a, a suburb of Auckland City in Auckland in New Zealand, um, <laughs> we we have limited resources. So, in practical terms, we don't offer the financial services that most jurisdictions um, offer or pretend to offer. Um, so that we tend to take the attitude that we are an administrative trustee and that we look to the client to um, continue using the relationships that the client has developed over over years. A lot of a lot of modern trust companies, of course, in places like the US, they will say, give, give us your money and we'll manage it and you go away. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't do that because we don't <laughs> pretend to have the expertise. But the, the other aspect about the independent trustee company is that if, um, if we are involved in litigation, if we have shareholding uh, directors, um, management or operations outside of the Cook Islands, then that creates exposure when it comes to litigation. And those were lessons that we learned early in the late 1980s. So that the model that I've uh, put in place with TNF is that we are 100% wholly owned by persons resident in the Cook Islands. We have no directors outside the Cook Islands. We have no operations outside the Cook Islands. And that maximizes the protection that we offer to asset protection clients if and when litigation develops. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Yeah, so that's so we're quite narrow and that and that has some impact on your potential growth, of course, but that's that's a choice that we've made. I've been involved in litigation with asset protection trusts, as I said, for you know for 40 years. And that model works. The other models tend to be cosmetic. I completely agree with you, and I, it's, I think your model protects the integrity of these asset protection trusts in its most extreme form. Um, you know, I, I've seen, um, and I won't name names of trust companies that have operated, um, you know, having you know, a trust charter in one jurisdiction, but having all the administration in another. And I've said all the time, well, it's just a matter of time before you're pulled into court and they're going to say this, you know, the laws of Delaware doesn't really apply because everything's being administered in Florida. And but they would look at me like I had two heads and I, I you know, like I was crazy. And, and I think your model is pure and I completely agree with it. And I just notice it by looking through your website and I understand the intentionality of doing it that way. And I applaud you for it. I mean, if we're going to talk about asset protection, then we got to make sure this this works, right? That's what that's yeah. what our clients are coming to us for. So yeah, it, uh, just, I mean, it isn't a punchline. At a, it isn't a punchline at a cocktail reception. We this thing has to work. Yeah, yeah. It, it's um, uh, clients. I mean, clients are going to develop their own sort of structures, and different attorneys are going to have their own sort of structures. But but at least we're offering a a model there that we know works at our end. Uh, Absolutely. You, you, you and I both know that a lot of um, asset protection business works on bluff, um, so that a lot of it doesn't get to serious litigation. Uh, it results in early settlements, but but it's good to have the. It's good to, to know that if it really 
it gets serious, then you're in a good place. Yeah, I completely agree. What is your experience with, and I'll, I'll call them fleeing provisions, although that's not what we call it in South Dakota, but there is a statute, and I'm not sure about other jurisdictions with asset protection statutes, but or I should say domestic asset protection statutes, but in, in particular, um, where under South Dakota law, there's the ability to essentially name your trust company as an immediate successor to Bridgeford. And if the trust is ever challenged under South Dakota law, um, we, Bridgeford, have no choice but to resign um, as opposed to honoring or paying a judgment um, that would be levied against the trust or said another way if Bridgeford Trust Company sued to, to compel us to make payment. And I'm, I'm describing that on a very high level. Um, again, some lawyers call it a fleeing provision. Have you seen those, Ruben? Have you, or have you worked with trust companies in that respect? Because I, and, and A, and B, I wonder if they work. And, and really the theory, as you know, for our audience is that you know, should calamity strike, there's an argument that as an operation of law matter in South Dakota, is this trust simultaneously could become a Cook's Island trust under the jurisdiction of that country and, and Ruben's trust company. So tell me your experience with those. Do you think they work? Is that something that you've seen? Yeah, I, th I think um, they can work. Um, they can also be cosmetic. Um, the... My, my position is that I think the starting point is that there is some potential exposure for the U.S. trustee um, in wiping his hands of things. Uh, sure. We could be uh, hit with contempt orders and all kinds of things. I yeah. Agree. yeah. Um, and in terms of uh, the trust suddenly arriving in the Cook Islands, there will be some situations where the trustee will say, uh, no, thanks, not this one. Um, so that... It's not, yeah, and I mean, I've had experience in, in this trust company of, uh, of saying that to a client um, because, um, because the litigation that developed was late. Uh, it involved a uh, fact situation that, was, that uh, was not good for our um, appearances. And, um, yeah, so various other matters like that. And you've also got to talk about getting assets transferred. It's not just a matter of uh, changing the trustees. Um, you've got to talk about savvy lawyers in the US who issue freeze orders against anything happening, and that's becoming more common. So yeah, so they can still work, um, but um, but they can also be, um, they can also uh, not work. Uh, and, and so it depends on the situation. I think, um, I think some of them, I think they're called bridging trusts, where the Cook Islands trustee has no trustee functions at all until the retirement of the U.S. domestic. I, I think those are, yeah, I wouldn't recommend a client go into that if he really wants asset protection. No, I appreciate your feedback on that. I, I've looked at those. We, we've done we've done a fair a fair amount um, in in different jurisdictions outside of the United States, but I've never seen it tested. And I'm not even sure there is a, a test case because, to your point, so much of this asset protection conversation is isn't tested. It's it becomes a deterrent, as you as you say. And and so, at least in the United States, there are not a lot of cases uh, on point 
around asset protection. I mean, there's a great case out of South Dakota called Cleopatra, but that's not even a self-settled case. It's this third party and really turned on the spendthrift provision. So anyhow, in one respect, we bemoan that there's not a lot of case law to give us guidance on the viability of a U.S. domestic asset protection trust. But then the other side of the coin is, yeah, but that means that the deterrent aspect is working, right? So that's a good thing, too. So in my opinion. But uh, well, let, let's transition to the trust protector. Uh, and then uh, then I really want to get to something I'm, I'm extremely excited about that you're, you've been working on and educating me on. But, you know, of course, the United States has that concept now. I know it's always existed in many other jurisdictions. And I, I really love the trust protector concept um, for a whole lot of reasons. Um, can you talk to me about it from in the context of, of Cook's Island law and, and how you, it, it looks like you will serve in that in that role. So can you can you give me give me some color on that? Yeah, so that traditionally the trust protector role, as you know, is to ensure that the trustee behaves himself, um, that the protector has the power to um, remove and re- and appoint the trustee. Um, so that's that's where protector powers began, um, but they're expanded upon in most trust documents. So that you'll find that trustees have. Uh, sorry, that protectors have the power of veto over any trustees' actions relating to, for example, distributions and so forth. So, so protectors' powers are, may or may not be extensive, but will always uh, include the power to remove and appoint trustees. The, the danger of protectors' powers is that he, there have been cases in the US where courts have pounced upon a US resident protector and said to him, uh, you remove that Cook Islands trustee and appoint someone in the US as a trustee. And so it's important that the protector is not within the jurisdiction of a US court if and when litigation develops. And so you're talking about appointing a protector from outside the US in most cases. Um, so some clients say, well, I've got a brother living in Italy or, or you know, a good friend somewhere else. Uh, but we also can offer, um, our trust company will act as a protector for a, a trust. We don't like to act as a protector of a trust that we're the trustee of. Yeah, of course. Because, yeah. That, because that's you know, putting the rabbit in charge of the lettuce patch. Um, so, uh, but that's one of the services that we do offer acting as a protector for asset protection trust so that we're able to take that decision, for example, to remove a domestic uh, US trustee if, if and when Yep, no, that makes sense. A, a quick question, and I'm, I apologize for the, probably the elementary aspect of, of my inquiry here, but is is under Cook's Island is 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 it presumed or is it in fact a, a fiduciary role, the trust protector? That that depends on the. There's no presumption that it's fiduciary. It, it depends on the extent of the powers that are vested in the protector. Um, if if it's limited to removal of trustee and appointment of trustee, uh, then it's generally held not to be fiduciary. The further you go away from that, the more extensive those powers go, the more likely it's to be seen as fiduciary. The statute itself, the statute says um, that they're not fiduciary. 
Ah, they, that was uh, going to be my next question. In, in South Dakota, you can you 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 have the option to have it be fiduciary or non-fiduciary, um, but it's interesting because it doesn't uh, it doesn't tie to the the powers. <clears throat> it just it just is enumerated in the document whether the position is considered a fiduciary or non-fiduciary. I think the approach in Cook Island is a little makes a lot more sense to me from a from a legal perspective. Interesting. Yeah, well, I think I think it's important. Um, there's a bit of case law here where the, the issue was raised and where the um, the protector was asked to do certain things and um, the protector didn't agree that it was in the interests of the trust and the beneficiaries to do that, even though a foreign court was ordering it to do so. And so the, the judges here said that that power had to be exercised in a fiduciary manner um, and uh, therefore the trustee should not uh, make the appointment that was ordered by the foreign court so yeah so that's yeah there's a bit of um, there's a bit of a track record again and then and that's you know when we talk about why use the cooks that that's the sort of we've got that um, case law we've got 40 years of case law uh, dealing with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Which a lot of the other offshore jurisdictions I know just doesn't have. It's 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 important. So all of this is just is frankly building to something that I mentioned earlier that I'm, I'm pretty excited about that you've you've taught me. Um, and and it's consistent I think with your advocacy. It sounds like over forty years in Cooks Island where you see a problem and you try to find a solution or at least push push the the. the legislature and the and the powers that be in Cooks Island to adopt a, a, a solution. So I'm going to name it, but I'd like you to start with the problem that you solved. So you, you've come up with something called an International Relationship Property Trust, which we will get into in detail. But first, tell me the problem that you were solving when you, when you, when you created this concept. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, let's call it the RPT, because otherwise it's a mouthful. Relationship. Property <laughs> I trust. can't believe I even got it right the first time. Yeah, yeah, just the RPT. Um, okay. Uh, okay. So as a as a professional advisor to trusts over the last forty odd years, I've been involved with families who have you know developed substantial wealth, and I've looked after their kids and grandkids. Um, and you know, as a trustee, I've so I've, that's the positive side that I've seen. So you know. These may be asset protection trusts, but they but they become dynasty trusts. They become trusts that look after the future of of their issue through several generations and just provide for their financial security. So that's what I have always thought trusts were all about. And then in the more recent period, I came across these trusts that kept getting dismantled by family courts where the founding couple divorced and suddenly the family courts are saying, oh, no, we don't think these assets are, are, can be set aside from the you know, relationship property uh, matters and we're going to drag all of those assets back into, um, into the matrimonial property dispute. And so I've, I've, I was sitting there watching the courts, family courts, dismantling 30, 40 years of good work that I'd done. I, I found that frustrating. Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, um, and, and, you know, quite, quite frankly, I mean, you read about in the newspapers about the, the 
you know, these nasty divorces, but but the impact on the the wealth of a family can be huge. Um, so I started thinking about this uh, well, three or four years ago and decided that there had to be a better way of dealing with it. And the the basic problem that I identified, and I went to different lawyers in a number of different jurisdictions, is that basic problem is that the courts, when there is a divorce, the courts like to split the assets up amongst the parties. And, and part of that, you'll find it's a policy decision. And in, in a number of English jurisdictions, it's actually in law that the courts are required to divide the assets up so that the parties are not to have any further dealings with each other on any financial matters. And you can understand judges wanting that because they don't want to hear these people arguing about these things indefinitely. So that was the policy that you must divide the assets. And so we have a number of cases where we have a trust that's been operating for 30 odd years. It's operating perfectly. The administration is being done. Everyone's being looked after. And the judges in the family law courts are saying, oh, no, no, we're going to divide all those assets and each of you is going to walk away with a lump sum of cash. Um, and you forget about the financial planning that's been thought through for the future generations. You forget about the value of a business that's virtually destroyed by this. Um, but that's the way the courts are going. So I identified the best way of dealing with that is to provide a statutory rebuttal of the need to divide and distribute the assets so that the, the core of the relationship property law says that if you form a relationship, if you form an RPT and put assets into it, then in the event you, you divorce, those assets are not to be distributed and not to be divided but they're to remain intact in the trust. So it has a statutory rebuttal of the clean, what we call the clean break principle. Sure. So that's the so, core of the new product. So let's, let, let's, so let's break it down. I mean, I, I think it's brilliant. Um, if you could, let, let's use a, a real life example here. And, and, and before we do that, uh, just a, a quick point of clarification. Do these trusts need to be established prior to marriage or not? No, they can be established at any time. Right. Um, so that's a, is a big distinguishing. I, I, that's a leading question. I'm sorry. But yeah, I, that's, that's a big distinguishing factor. It's from some, some other um, asset protection solutions I've seen. So go ahead. So we'll, please, let's, let's use a real life example so the listeners understand. And I think we understand the problem. Let's figure out what the practical solution is here because I think it's compelling. Yeah, well, just, you know, relevant to the timing of it, we've, we've just... We're in the process of actually forming a trust at the moment where a couple, they've been married for 40 years, they've decided they don't want to be married to each other. They're still talking. Um, they also are, are interested in keeping the assets that they've built up intact rather than separating and dividing because they've got children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So, so as part of an amicable divorce, we're actually setting up this trust, which uh, is an RPT, 
And both parties are comfortable with the RPT because it's the only way that is available to make sure that this aim of keeping the assets together will be achieved. There's no other way of achieving that within US law, within most English law jurisdictions. So, so it's not only at any time before or during the marriage, it's even when the marriage has come to an end that you can use this as a, as a way of achieving um, an amicable settlement. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of a prenup, um, David, but, but except that prenups are based on the assets being distributed and divided between them. This, this is, is the prenup, but the assets are not to be divided. They're to be kept intact. Now, that's a great analogy for, for, for our listeners, um, because when, when you first took me through this, I had to really change, change the way I was looking at this. And, um, and, and now that, and that's, I think, a perfect way to describe it. And yeah, so you might, um, you might actually, you might find situations, we haven't had them yet, but we might find situations where a couple does both a prenup and a RPT. So, you know, they, they say, well, these assets, we're going to divide like this and distribute. But the other family assets that we have, we're going to keep intact, and that's to be make sure that for the for financial security of our of our issue for the next hundred years or whatever. But there's other there's a, there's a whole lot of typical situations where the RPT can be important, and perhaps one of the most important is where you have a family business, and as as you know, um, where you have a family business and you have a family court looking at it, the family court's going to normally be saying, well, 50% of the value of that business is going to have to be paid out to one of the spouses. Um, not many companies can finance 50% of it, their value. And so that puts that business into a difficult situation. It may end up with the business having to be sold. And that is what happens in a number of situations. Mm -hmm. We see it all the time. Yep. And so that 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 problem with family businesses, there's other parties that are affected by that uh, that problem as well. You know, there's third party investors in the family business. There's financiers. There's banks that are lending to the family business. None of those are interested in uh, a, a company that's suddenly going to lose a large amount of its value. So the, what, what we're doing then is we're putting the shares in the family company into the RPT so that if there is a divorce, then the family company is not part of the matrimonial proceedings, matrimonial property proceedings. So that's... And a, and a, and a court can't order it, it can't compel it. Yeah, so, so let's just talk about how does it work or does it work? Um, I won't go into any more examples, so we'll just at the moment, so we'll do does it work and how does it work. So that let's say we do that for a US couple. Uh, now a US court is going to say, well, you know, hold on. Um, that might be what Cook Islands law says, but uh, we don't like that. Um, so that you do have a, you then go to the old asset protection background um, and the firebreak rules that where a Cook Islands court says, well, we're not going to recognize a US decision that goes against um, Cook Islands law policy. Um, 
so that you that's the same asset protection provisions that you do have um, in asset protection trusts they come back into this RPT law but in RPTs the Cook Islands Court does have some discretion to look at a US judgment and do some modifications so there's room for movement on things like shares respective interests of the parties, but there is no room for manoeuvre on keeping the asset intact. Yep, I understand. So it's, it's an important difference between RPTs and APTs. With APTs, the Cook Islands Court says to a US judgment, no, not interested, uh, you can't enforce that judgment here. RPTs, the Cook Islands Court says, all right, we'll look at the US judgment, we may, we have a discretion to change shares where there's uh, some uh, problem of, of fairness, but we're not going to change the intact nature of the, the holding. There's other, there's other various safeguards in the RPT legislation, and what they're designed for is so that when a US court looks at Cook Islands law in this situation, a US court should find that you, uh, Cook Islands law is actually quite fair and reasonable. Um, and that takes us back to the prerequisites for forming an RPT. And if you look at those, they're set out in the legislation and they basically follow the same rules that apply to prenups. That is, there must be full disclosure of income assets and liabilities by both parties. There must be independent legal representation of both parties. And there's a 40-day clawback at the, after you've signed the trust, you've got the ability to change your mind within a 40-day period. So there's various other provisions in this legislation that are designed so that the legislation should not appear aggressive to a foreign court, for example, to a US court looking at this US courts should say this is family-oriented legislation, um, it's fair to both parties, uh, it should be recognised. So that's the, that's the best situation and if you ask me, well, you know, what have the cases been so far? Well, they haven't. Unfortunately, none of our clients have divorced and challenged these things. Um, well, no, I mean, that's a great point. And, and there's also, I guess, the question, too, of if the legislation is as strong as it sounds like it is, then what's the challenge, right, you know, um, in terms of in terms of the viability? I mean, I think it's it's brilliant. I, I like it a lot. And I really appreciate you taking the time to, to, to explain it to me and, and also our listeners. And I, I think that it's, it's creative. And I, I love the entrepreneurial creative aspects of, of what it is you've built over the last many years. And in many ways, I think, as, as I said, I think Bridgeford and, and your company are, are well aligned from a paradigm perspective and lends itself to be natural partners in the in the sort of global um, trust services arena because, of course, Bridgeford has the U.S. solution when needed and, and then when we, we need something outside of the U.S., then you know, you're our natural natural partner and I see us doing a lot of great work together. Um, yeah, this has I been... Think, please, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just think just in terms of the relationship with uh, U.S. trustee companies, I think um, because our legislation is not aggressive, it's not like asset protection, it's not aggressive, it's 
it's sense. Uh, what, what can I say? It's um, it's pretty much common sense. Um, um, there there is likely to be situations where clients will want a U.S. co-trustee as well as a Cook Islands co-trustee, um, and for an RPT, I'm talking about. Um, and in the event of litigation developing, then the U.S. trustee will be will be saying that look, there's no reason why Cook Islands law should not apply in these situations, um, and that will be something that uh, we would present an argument on. Uh, so I I didn't see in asset protection we're all we're always um, in pure asset protection we're always hesitant about having any um, US-based co-trustee, at least definitely when if there's litigation developing. Uh, but in the RPT, um, in my opinion, um, it will develop where we have uh, co-trustees onshore US. Um, some, some lawyers will say, no, they still want everything offshore. So they'll say the assets in the RPT should be held offshore somewhere, um, that's, that's a higher standard, um, but I, I, I'm confident that this RPT law will be seen as something positive and not negative uh, by foreign courts. Oh, I agree, and uh, we certainly welcome the opportunity to uh, collaborate with you on this and, and other matters. Give, yeah, do you want me to give you a couple, few examples of people that might benefit from it? Please. Yeah, well, I think I've already I've already talked about family business owners, and I think it's it's sort of pretty common sense. Um, but the general statement is that it, really any couple that wants to ensure that their financial resources uh, survive for the future generations um, should be thinking about this. Um, you know, unless they consider themselves divorce proof. Um, I think. Family office and wealth managers, um, they need to wake up to the fact that the assets that they're managing could suddenly be reduced to 45% of what they were managing because of um, the divorce of the founders. Um, de facto couples, um, we've had an increasing amount of interest from de facto couples because in certain jurisdictions their rights uh, are not recognized uh, or, or put it should I say that the rights are confused when it comes to um, their property to their joint property as well as the um, the rights of their their children um, same-sex couples again we've got um, issues where their rights in relation to common property is is often not well developed uh, we've had a little bit of interest in relation to legacy properties um, the one of the one of the peculiarities of uh, Australian wealth is that it's held by what pastoralists or the farmers, who the only thing they ever do is they buy the neighbour's farm when the neighbour dies. That's they just build up huge areas of land, and they um, they are not too keen when uh, when upon a divorce that land is is sold and departs from the family after three or four generations. Um, another one that sort of crept up on me and I wasn't thinking about at the time was when you and I 
who have daughters want to protect our daughter's inheritance from an unscrupulous partner uh, so that we can require our daughter to and her partner to enter into an RPT and on that basis we can make a donation to that RPT so we can settle assets on that RPT with the knowledge that the um, the rotten apple is not going to run away with half of it um, because the RPT says the assets have to remain intact. The rotten apple might get a, a source of income from the asset, um, but he's not going to be able to wander off with 50% uh, of the asset of the $10 million that I just transferred into the trust. Um, and the other, the other area, uh, there's a couple of others. It's uh, increasingly there's people who are married, who, who are born in one country, who marry in another country, um, who have property in several countries and then move to the US. And it's, it's always going to be confusing as to whose law should apply yeah. when it comes down to matrimonial property, whether it's going to be uh, a couple who, one of them's from Israel, the other one's from Germany, and they were married in Hungary and they own property in the UK and the US and, and Israel. And, uh, you know, just, just exactly whose law is going to be applied to those assets when they divorce. So this is a way of saying, well, we're going to provide a, a, a neutral jurisdiction. Um, and the other, the other area, which we haven't seen any uptake on, but it was in the planning, was where a country like Saudi, where wives have um, very little rights at all, uh, so that a way of of um, securing the interest of spouses in those jurisdictions where particularly women uh, have few rights, if any, in relation to matrimonial property. So those were just examples. Um, well, and what, and what clearly was in your mind when you put together the, the legislation. I um, Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I applaud you for your creativity and, and your... Thought leadership uh, in asset protection area and, and and this this whole divorce question it's it's there there are issues big hard issues facing families who are trying to do prudent planning, uh, not illegal planning and that's something that you know I want to get uh, in our final minutes together your your, your thoughts on um, you know in light of the Pandora Papers and of course Panama Papers spread in more particularity I guess Pandora Papers. And, you know, advisors like you and me and others around the world were, you know, sort of chastised a bit for for the type of planning that we do. And and some people have a real aversion to the concept of asset protection. And and the Pandora Papers really kind of opened my eyes because South Dakota got got hit pretty hard on that. And and in the the point, of course, that wasn't made until probably the very end of all these articles was that you know none of these families or individuals really were found to have broken any laws or did anything wrong. And so what's become trendy is to is to say that to the world that trust companies like ours and sophisticated planners like the ones I'm sure we both know around the world are somehow nefarious because we're helping people do illegal things and we are not. And so I've become kind of defensive of our industry and, and I've written a couple of pieces where we say, look, you know, life is like anything else, you know, I mean, I mean, it's like, a, I mean, this is like anything else. I mean to say, it's a, it's a, it's a chess game and anybody who knows the rules of chess is always going to perform better. And I think that's all this is. What you are talking about is perfectly legal. And what we talk about, of course, is perfectly legal too. Um, and this, this, 
this direction that we're going in in the media where we're somehow we're, we're, we're aiding and abetting bad actors is just not accurate. And, and so I, I might just to kind of get your take on this as we, as we wind down on that issue, because it's, it, I continue to see articles that are inaccurate and, 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 and again, the Pandora papers was wildly inaccurate in terms of basically not conceding until the end, as I said, that none of these families did anything wrong. So I love your thoughts. I mean, you've been in this a lot longer than I have. I'm sure you've, you've encountered ne- negativity and, and that same vein. And how do you respond to that? Yeah, well, I mean, I have the same reaction as you, which is that, um, you know, the, the press is, uh, I guess it makes its uh, money from overselling things. But the reality, it, at least in relation to asset protection and RPT, there's, these things are not being hidden. The, the Asset Protection Trust is not something you hide. If litigation develops, you pull it out and say, well, here you go, do your best. Um, the, the Asset Protection Trust files its um, US tax uh, compliance documents. It meets, most of them are grantor, so they're all, uh, the set law is still paying as taxes on the income from the APT. The RPT is is even more transparent um, because both parties' lawyers know about it at the outset. It's not a it's not a tax planning um, structure. It's it's quite narrow in its focus. It's to protect assets in the event of a divorce. It's a it's a better way of dealing with uh, the breakup of a divorce. Uh, than currently you can find onshore in any jurisdiction. I've, I haven't been able to find any other jurisdiction that offers this uh, alternative, which is probably why it took me two or three years to put the legislation together. <laughs> it's, it's not easy. Well, it's not easy. Well, but you're no stranger to it because you've done it before with the asset protection legislation, right? So. Well, this has been fascinating. I, I want to remind our, our listeners that um, your company is uh, trustees and fiduciaries based out of the Cooks Island. Uh, when I heard you refer to it as TNF, I like that. Um, I, as I said at the beginning, I, I highly encourage everybody to, uh, who's listening and wants more information to just contact Ruben directly or go to the website. It's, there's a lot of education material on there. And Ruben, like me, enjoys the uh, education, thought leadership way of going the market, and he, he's done it in a great in a great way for many years. And Ruben, I just thank you personally. I mean, I, you know, we've getting to know each other. I see ways our companies can complement each other to help families all over the world. And I look forward to continuing to, to build a partnership and a, and a friendship with you. So once again, thank you for joining us. And uh, before we let you... Uh, Go back to writing more uh, important legislation in Cook's Island. Do you have anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? <laughs> no, no, no. Thanks, thanks for that, David. And it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Um, I, I tell you what, I'm not going to do any more legislation for a little while. But this <laughs> one, this one has been hard work, mainly because no one else had done it anywhere. So it was, yeah, it was an uphill drive and uh, so i'm going to have a, a little bit of a break a little bit of a break until you find another problem until you find another problem you have to sign i saw <laughs> thanks again ruben thanks again for listening to bridgeford trust company's delivering direction and control podcast series be sure to subscribe to our podcast to keep posted on when new episodes are added And for more information, you can visit us online at bridgefordtrust.com.